Hi, I'm Josh Shearer and I serve as the lead pastor here at Gawley Uniting Church. I wanted to personally thank you for joining us today. We exist as a church to see lives transformed with the good news of Jesus. Now, I hope this service inspires you. I hope it blesses you. I hope it builds your faith and I hope it gives you perspective that God is moving in your life. If there is anything that we can do to help you, don't be afraid to reach out on social media or email our office. Thanks for joining us again and let's get to the service. Loving and gracious God, we are grateful that we can open your word and just see what it's got to say to us today. Lord, we thank you for the timeless truths that we find, truths that encapsulate the wisdom, truths that you have already spoken over our life. So Lord, I I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, Lord. Open our hearts to receive all that you have for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in a, well, we're finishing a series at the moment, and it's called Called, as it would happen. What does it mean to be called by Jesus? What does it mean to be called to follow Him? What does it mean to be called to be His witness, to be His hands and feet in the world? And so over this, I think it's been seven or eight weeks, we've been exploring this idea in a bunch of different ways, and the ideas haven't been particularly well connected other than the idea of being called. But a question for you, and I wonder, you may have never ever given this any thought, but I know some of you have, and it would be, have you ever been called a goat? Have you ever been called a goat? A silly goat, perhaps, Yes. A billy goat, maybe. The sort of goat I'm talking about, it's an acronym. And it means the greatest of all time. I've never been called a goat, not in that context anyway. I've been called a goat by many people for a bunch of different reasons, but never that one. But I wonder, have you ever been considered the greatest of all time? Or heard someone called that or even thought about it? Greatest of all time. Because we think about different people, different, and often it's ascribed to sports people, is perhaps one of the, the most prevalent, it might have even been where the phrase was coined. And I wondered, you, and you might have an opinion if, you're a, if you follow basketball, who is the greatest of all time when it comes to playing the professional sport of basketball? Is it Michael Jordan or is it LeBron James, maybe Stephen Curry? Maybe someone a bit older than those three. What about for tennis? Any tennis fans in the room? A couple? I hear that there was a fair old tennis court next door before the new hall was built. New hall. It's, it's been a while now. But I'm, and I have no doubt that many who played on that court, probably some of you, aspired perhaps to be the greatest tennis player of all time. But I wonder who would it be for you? Could it be Roger Federer? Maybe Serena Williams, 
Maybe Novak Djokovic or someone else a bit older that I have no idea who they are. I wonder, what about the greatest musical act? Let's move away from sports. What about the greatest musical act? Who's the greatest musical artist that you've ever seen or experienced? Was it the Beatles? Or perhaps Queen? Was it Michael Jackson or Elton John? Who was the greatest musical act of all time that you ever saw or never saw? We all have different experiences, different perspectives on that. Who is the greatest of all time in that area that we want to focus on? And so if I were to shift that question a little bit, I might ask you, who's the greatest teacher of all time? Or maybe who's the greatest saviour of all time? And for many of us, for many of you in church, you think, well, Josh, why would you ask me that question? Because it seems so logical. It's Jesus, right? He's the greatest teacher of all time, was the one that had the greatest wisdom to communicate to the world. His disciples called him the good teacher. And he said, that's true, because that's what I am. But his disciples also called him Lord. And so we reflect that not only was Jesus the greatest teacher of all time, as far as we believe, but he was the greatest saviour of all time. And we might not consider that that would ever come into question, but the thing that I felt called to explore with you today is the very place we find ourselves in as a culture, is that there are many in our world that would call that claim into question. That when presented with the question, who is the greatest saviour of all time, who's the greatest teacher of all time, they would not necessarily proclaim the word Jesus. And it feels many cultural um, critics, certainly critics of the church, might declare that that is a truth that is unique to our 21st century context, that for many of us, we grew up in the church, and you might be a follower of Jesus or you might not be, but we found ourselves certainly through the 50s, 60s, and 70s in a Christian culture that is very much, and it's assumed that Jesus was central, church was central, and that might have been your experience, yet as we end the 20th and into the 21st century, many would look around at our culture and say, no, I think there's more people in our culture that would not declare Jesus as Savior, that Jesus is not the greatest of all time. But friends, that's not a 21st century problem. As much as some might declare that it is, in contrast to what we might have grown up with. This is an eternal problem, a problem that the church of Jesus Christ has wrestled with across time and space everywhere, at all stages of time. That instead there is an ebb and flow that exists within culture across the entire globe of those that declare Jesus as Lord and those that don't. And I don't know where you're at this morning in terms of faith. I don't know where you're at in terms of whether you would consider Jesus as Lord or whether you would consider Him as just a teacher, as someone who had some great ideas. But sadly, He died, but we can learn a few things. But what I want to do is explore a passage of Scripture this morning that I believe answers that question for us the same way that it, it answered that question 
for the first century church. And we like to think that when we look back at the first century church, hold the phone. We like to think that when we look back at the first century church, it was always just up and to the right. It was always just a positive movement. But when we look a little closer, we find a very different picture. And so with the rest of our time together, I want, you to, I want to invite you to compare, dare to compare. Who it is that you might, at this point in your life or at this stage in your journey, declare as Lord over your life. I want you to dare to compare who that or what that might be with Jesus. Because that's exactly what the Apostle Paul it talks and invites his first, the first century church that he was the pastor of. It's the exact question he invites them to consider. In this letter that we're reading, in the letter to the Colossians, in chapter 2. If you've got a Bible with you, you're welcome to turn to it, but it will be on the screen as well. And we explore a letter that Jesus wrote to this first century church exploring what it means to make sure that Jesus is the center of our life. And so, instead of exp expanding it anymore, I want to I let this text speak for itself and explore what it's got to say to us. So, Paul writes, So then, just as you received Christ, Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him. How? Rooted like a tree, built up in Him, like a building with strong foundations, strengthened, or in the ancient language, certified, like a document, like a stamp on a document, certified in the faith, the same way you were taught, and then overflowing with thankfulness. Like a cut the image here as a cup of wine, the best wine, overflowing with that wine to the world around you, overflowing with thankfulness. So what Paul wants the community to understand and what I think sets us up for where we're going with our time this morning is Paul wants this first century church that as they're growing up, to not move on. As they grow up in the faith, to not move on. And this might seem like a strange thing, but let's think about it. For many of us, we grew up in the faith. We grew up with some understanding of Jesus and who He was in our life, or who He was to the world. And you might have never experienced that before. But at some point, we experience truth about Jesus. But many have said to me as a pastor, Josh, I don't know if I believe this stuff about God anymore. My question is always, why? And the response most often is, well, to be honest, I think I've just grown up. I think I've just moved on. I think it was fine as a child. It gave, us, gave me some stories and stuff to comfort me. But I think I've moved on. And, is, and the f faith... You know, it's, it's inviting me to believe a bunch of things and on trust. And 
in our scientific post-enlightenment world, that seems like a, a high bar to grasp. And for, the, and for this Colossian church, they were having the same questions. The, the truth of the gospel had been declared to them and people had accepted Jesus. But as, as they started to grow up in the faith, their faith started to intersect with different teachings, different ideas. And for many of them, it wasn't strong enough. And Paul's declaration to them is, as you grow up in the faith, don't move on. Don't move on. And we read why in just a minute. And so for, me, for, for you this morning, you might have come with questions. For some of you joining us online, you might have questions about the faith. And as you explore faith a little bit more, you start to land with more questions. But I'd love to declare to you this morning that as you grow up in the faith, don't move on. Because there is more to be found here than you might first realize. What I find interesting is that in our culture at the moment, we've got what's called a progressive narrative. Have you ever heard of it? It's a progressive narrative that declares that all that is required is for us to get our political, our economic, our social, and our environmental issues in check, and the world will be fine. Does that sound familiar to any of you? It's, this, it's something about hope. It's something about an expectation that at some point in our future, there is a utopia found on the other, high, on the other side of human ingenuity and, and human decency and human goodness and human something, human achievement. That There's a utopia on the other side there somewhere that if only we could get everything right, then everything would be fine, and it would all be okay. And there's so many in our culture and in our world now that have stepped away from the faith and have looked to a utopian progressive idea, that somehow there's something in our future of, on the other side of us getting, just getting everything right that will see us find hope. And what I find interesting is the words Paul declares in this moment speak as much into that narrative as it does into ours, and as it does as it did into the first century. What would we say to a progressive, what would Paul say to a progressive narrative that says if we just get everything right, then everything will be okay? And we, in verse 8, we explore what it is, what specifically the Colossian church is wrestling with. And I wonder if you can hear anything in this passage that relates to our experience, starting in verse 8. He says, he writes, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow or deceptive philosophies, which depend on human traditions and the elemental forces, elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Any of that sound familiar? Any of that sound relevant? Have you experienced any of those 
as a challenge to the gospel in your life? Because clearly, Paul, we never find out exactly what it is Paul was writing against, other than this passage in verse 8. He just writes, see that you don't let empty philosophies take you captive. Creative ideas is the, is the idea here. Is that whilst there are creative ideas that might be presented to you about the hope of the world, don't let them capture your imagination. Why? Because Jesus is better. Don't let human tradition be your grounding. Because humanity is limited in what we can offer. One might challenge the local church in many ways to receive this as well. Don't let tradition be what you are grounded on. Instead, Paul says, be grounded in Christ and allow tradition to inform you in your faith. And then lastly, he says, don't look to the elemental and spiritual forces of this world. Now, in a pre-enlightenment era, they believed that the elements, oh, that was your fingers, they believed that the elements were the controlling forces of nature and that each of, them, each of them in a pagan world is a god that you could worship and pray to and ultimately, if that god liked you and liked what you had to say, would do what you asked, make it rain or make it sun, make the sun shine, would make the earth fertile, would make the seas helpful. But Paul in this moment declares that the one that we believe in, Jesus the Christ, is bigger than all of those, is bigger than anything that you might find in this world to try and put your hope in. And I wonder, friends, how many things do we find within the created order of this world to put our hope in? How many things can we think of? Pick your God. Money. Sex. Yeah, I, was, I used the word in church. Hope that's okay. Power. Significance. Popularity. Stuff. A new car. Acceptance of others. Likes on Instagram, if that's your thing. If you even know what that is. The love and acceptance of your family. Now, that might not seem like an okay thing, and it is. But at some point, if that's what we're using as our measure for our significance and our hope and our future, they all fall short. And Paul says that they are, other, is what you're putting your hope in hollow or full? Is it genuine? Is it deceptive? Is it human tradition or is it God's truth? Is it an elemental force that we have is part of a, our creation, or is it Jesus, the creator of all? And with that tension, the Apostle Paul answers the question of why we should follow Jesus, why Jesus is better than anything else we could look to. And he gives us two reasons. Because in Jesus, friends, you and I, we will not find a higher Lord, and we will not find a better offer. Friends, in all of creation, we will not find a higher Lord to serve, and we will not, in the gospel, we will not find a better offer for salvation. 
Because he continues in verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity, that is all the fullness of God, not just part of it, not just a little bit of it, all of the fullness of God lives in bodily form. In the original language, this term fullness has two slight different translations. One of them means reflecting the characteristics of, and one of them is fully being that thing. And in this context, Paul intentionally uses not just like, not just the characteristics of, fully embodying and being God. So he says, when you look around, Jesus, in Jesus is the fullness of God in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and every authority. So in all of creation, you will not find a higher Lord than Jesus. Anything else that we might create, anything else that we might look to is not the fullness of God. It might be a sliver of it. It might be a reflection of it. It might be an imitation of it. But as Paul declares to the first century church, I believe he declares to us now that there is nothing greater in all of creation than Jesus the Christ. The fullness of God fully realized. The fullness of God fully given. And so why Jesus? Why Jesus? Because in all of creation, we will not find a higher Lord. And if we're honest, we've tried some. We've tried some. And each one of, this ate, each one of them ate us alive. We've tried to put, we've tried to make alcohol our Lord. And it left us empty and poor. We've tried to make our family our Lord. And they keep demanding more and more and more of us. We've tried to make the church our Lord. And it ends up hurting us. Because it's made up of people. How strange. We've tried making our careers. We've tried making money. Whatever, whatever it is that you choose, we've tried it. Haven't you? And what did it do? Where are you as a result? Where am I as a result? Every time... We put something else instead of Jesus as our Lord. It leaves us with nothing. It eats us alive. And so Paul would declare that in the face of anything else that we could make Lord of our life, Jesus is the only one. Why? Because He was there at the beginning. In Him is the fullness of God. And He's higher than anything in all of creation. I don't know about you, but when I think about who I want to serve in my life, when I think about who I want to have the ultimate authority over my life, I'd want it to be the guy that's above everything else, wouldn't you? And Paul said, declares, you can look anywhere in all of creation and you will not find a higher Lord than our Jesus Christ. And so why Jesus? Because he's the highest there is. But he continues in verse 11 and he says, in him, so in Jesus you are also circumcised. That's uncomfortable. 
But it was a circumcision that wasn't performed by human hands, thank goodness. See, instead, he writes, your whole self, ruled by your fleshly desires, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. That is, when you were set apart, when you declared Jesus as Lord. How's that possible? Well, he says, by having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And that's what we believe. When we declare Jesus as our Lord and Savior and we are baptized, which you'll see happen next week if you've never seen one, we symbolically die to ourselves by going into the water. And when we come back out again, We are raised to new life in Christ. It's symbolic of Jesus' death on the cross and entry into the tomb. And then being raised to new life. So we as followers of Jesus, when we are baptized, we declare that same truth over our own lives. That's what Paul's talking about. It continues, when you were dead in your sins... And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins. Having cancelled the charge of legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away. How? By nailing it to a cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What is that all saying? What Paul is saying in that moment is that having agreed that across all of creation you will not find a higher Lord than Jesus, he then declares that in all of creation you will not find a better offer for salvation than the one that Jesus offers to us through himself. That we have been thoroughly saved by grace through faith plus nothing. By grace, through faith, plus nothing. And across time and space, so many of the Christian traditions, if we're honest, have tried to add something to that list of, yes, you are saved by the grace of God, the gift of Jesus Christ. You're saved by His death on the cross through faith. Yep, we accept that. Plus regular church attendance. By grace, through faith, plus giving to the church. By grace, through faith, plus kids doing what you want them to do in church. By grace, through faith, plus you choose what it is. Choose. Regular Bible reading. Any spiritual discipline you could think of. By grace, through faith, plus something. What Paul declares in this moment, and I remind you of, is that the gospel that we believe in, the one that is offered, is by grace through faith plus nothing. Nothing else is needed. Jesus is and was and always will be sufficient to save us. And anyone else that would tell you otherwise is a liar, has been deceived, or is trying to deceive you. For Jesus being the fullness of God was all that was required for us to be saved. Nothing else. 
And if we were to add anything, we would then at the same time be declaring that Jesus wasn't enough. That the Lord of all creation wasn't enough to save you from the sin and the brokenness that separates us from God. Are you willing to say that? I'm not. Grace by grace, through faith, plus nothing, is the best offer that we will find in all of creation to be saved. And we are try to add other things. We try to manipulate things. We try to explain in our minds how we can add to that equation or how we can make other people add things to their equation, behave certain ways so they can come to church or live in certain ways, whatever that might look like. But Paul in this moment says, in all of creation, Jesus Christ's death by faith, by grace, sorry, through faith, plus nothing, is what is on offer for you. And he goes on to say that if that is what is on offer, it doesn't just save us, it protects us. So how does he say that? He says, well, it cancelled the indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. And, how, and so what happens as a result? He disarms the powers and authorities. Which ones? The ones that declare that you are not enough. The ones that declare that you need extra things. The ones that declare that you are broken and that's all you'll ever be. The ones that declare that you have made massive mistakes in your life and that they should define you. The lies that are spoken over our life. Paul says that not only did Jesus save you, but he made it possible that for you to be bulletproof in the face of those accusations. Bulletproof. Wouldn't you like to be bulletproof? I don't plan to be shot at, but if I was to be shot at, I'd like to be bulletproof. And friends, every day of our life, we are shot at with lies, with half-truths, with things that will want to declare things over our life, things that want to speak an alternative truth. And Paul declares that not only do we have the highest Lord that we could find anywhere, but the greatest offer is not just being saved, but being protected. Being protected by Jesus for the rest of our life. We become bulletproof in the Josh translation from the threats and the accusations that the enemy brings before us every single day of our life by Jesus. And I love how Paul puts it. He disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a, a public spectacle of them. Made them a laughing stock. Why? How? By triumphing over them by the cross. Not only did he defeat death, he didn't even do it, he didn't choose to do it privately. Because although that would have been enough, he chose to be crucified publicly on a cross, buried in a place where most people would have known where it was at the time. And then he would raise, be raised from the dead and appear to hundreds of people 
This is not a private act, friends. This was a public, very public thing that happened. A public thing that history doesn't know what to do with. No historian can deny that whatever happened in that first century, whether you believe it or not, changed the world forever. And the only way that is possible is if it is true. So Jesus didn't just do this small, private, public saving of our sins. He saved us by saying, all right, give me the best you've got, enemy. Satan, give me the best that you've got. And Satan says, all right, I'm going to kill you because you're the son of God. And no one's come back from the death, so this should do it in a very public way. And in that, on that Sunday, at dawn, when the disciples go to the tomb and see the stone is rolled away, in that moment, Jesus makes a very public spectacle of humiliating the powers of darkness by saying, you have no control over me or anyone that would follow me. So my question as we draw our time to a close is this. Have you ever been tempted to move on from Jesus? Lately? Have you ever been tempted by something else in this life to put your hope in? To be the thing that defines you, gives you security? My word for you this morning is simply this. That of all the things that you could make your Lord, of all the things I could make as my Lord, I won't find a higher Lord than Jesus. One more qualified, one greater than Jesus. And of all the things that we look to to save us, whether it's a progressive narrative of human perfection or, or whether it's something else, that to save us, we will not find a better offer than the one that Jesus gives us. One that doesn't just save us, but one that protects us until we enter His kingdom when all of our life comes to a close. I don't know about you, but that's the best offer I've heard. That's the one I'm going to be following. So wherever you're at with faith, I invite you to consider who's the Lord of your life? Who's the greatest of all time? I put to you the only one worth it is Jesus because of what He has done for you. I'm going to invite the band back up as I pray. Would you pray with me, church? Loving and gracious God, I thank you for your word and the way that it just speaks a really simple truth. A truth that if we're honest, we need to hear sometimes. We need to hear often. Because we know our propensity to put other things in front of you. Our success and our wealth, our significance. Whatever it might be, Lord, in this moment, thank you for the reminder that you are greater than any other Lord that we might find in all of creation because you are above creation. You are the fullness of God. 
thank you for that reminder. And we put our hope in you again because we realize you're the, you're the greatest thing we could ever hope in. And Lord, we are also grateful for the promise that your promise to be our Savior is the greatest offer we will ever find. An offer that by your goodness and grace, through our faith and not our works, we are saved, we are forgiven, and we are free. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to receive that truth over our life, perhaps for the first time this morning, that we might know just a little bit more of the confidence we can have in you and the freedom we can find through who you are as the greatest of all time. In your name we pray. Amen.